Our scripture reading this morning will be Acts 3. Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to enter into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood up and began to walk, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, and why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But when you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, uh, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God had spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him and proclaimed these days, you are the sons and the prophets of the covenant that God made with our father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness.
Thank you, Brother Joe, for that reading. We see in that incredible story uh, the nature of Christ. And in Peter's sermon, he speaks forward, uh, he speaks backwards from the position of the prophets into their time, and he describes who Jesus was and what he did. Uh, this morning we continue on in our study in 1 John, and we look at uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And I'll read that text at this time. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. If I'm to uh, boil this down to one sentence, I would say that in Christ we have an advocate with the Father, and He is the propitiation for our sin. In Christ we have an advocate with the Father, and He is the propitiation for our sin. It seems a quite simple statement. It seems a, a simple truth, but it is the most earth-shattering news humanity has ever heard. If we look back at uh, the chapter 1, verses 5 to 10, uh, if you recall, we had this idea developed that God is light and in Him is no darkness, and we then looked at the five if statements uh, that we see there in verses 5 to 10. If we say we have fellowship with God while walking in darkness, we lie about that fellowship. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. If we walk in the light, Jesus' blood cleanses us from sin. If we deny that we have sin, we are deceived about ourselves. If we confess, our sin. Jesus is faithful to forgive and to cleanse. And then finally, again, if we deny our sin, we call God a liar. Now, coming from those statements, it would be, it would be easy for us to say that, that the responsibility for the solving of our sin problem is, is fully on Jesus. The language of, you can't say you're not sinful, is, is sort of calling us to admit our brokenness. And it's natural of all humans to not take the blame, and so when we're given an out to no longer take the blame, we'll generally take it. 
And many have read through these verses and, and other verses where we see the, the amazing grace of God in the face of our sinfulness and have said, well, then I, I'm not responsible for my sin. Jesus, Jesus paid for that, and, and we don't have to talk about sin. We don't have to consider it. We, we simply confess that we're broken, and God receives us. That in Christ, the presence of sin in humanity is not a problem for God. And there's a level in which that's true. If you are here this morning, and you are struggling with sinfulness, there is nothing that you can do that God can't forgive. There's nothing that you can do that God can't cleanse and make new. And so, in that, there's no reason for us to hide from God. Our brokenness, our sinfulness, is not a secret to Him. It's not something He doesn't expect. In fact, the previous verses would tell us that He expects that we will be sinful. But John begins our particular text by saying that reality does not mean it's open season on sinning. Uh, that we can kind of live however we wish and, and ask God for his token forgiveness and, and he'll just kind of take care of things. John's purpose in telling us about our sinfulness is to help us understand how Jesus has dealt with that sin. Again, over history, many have stated our freedom to continue sinning. Um, and the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 strikes directly at that. Are we con to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can you continue in something you have died to? In fact, in verse 6 of that chapter, he states, the purpose of Jesus' death on our behalf is that so we are no longer slaves to sin. And so in verses 1 and 2 here, it's as if John is saying to us, I don't want you to misunderstand it. The goal here is that you may be, may be victorious over sin. The goal is that you are no longer a slave to sin. And so in understanding the gospel properly, in understanding what it does for us, the gospel is not merely God's arrangement with Jesus to make our sin okay, but it was the plan in which our sin is put to death. And so I think there's a couple of things we have to understand. We have to understand the nature of sin. Uh, we have to understand, secondly, the nature of Christ, as we see here in this passage. I think where we get in a bit of trouble is when we misunderstand the nature of sin. And so sin, um, declaring something as sin, as God does, is, is not God being arbitrary. It's not God simply stating a preference. It's not God simply stating a, a house rule for Christianity. It's not God 
just simply being selfish to himself, if you want to say, and getting his own way. And the reason we think of sin in those terms is because that's generally how we perceive other people sinning against us. You see, I like things a certain way. And if you come to me and you do things a different way, then you are treading upon me. Well, with God, it's not merely a preference. With God, it's a representation of how he's created the world to be. And so when God presents us with the law, when he presents us with do's and don'ts, he's letting us know his own character. He's letting us know his way. He's letting us know how he has created the world to exist. In some ways, uh, I think this illustration breaks down a little bit, but I think it's worth doing. In some ways, God's moral code is a bit of an owner's manual to the world. So if you, if you go out and you're going to purchase uh, something new, uh, something that you don't know everything about already, you're generally going to read through the owner's manual to figure out how this thing works, what it likes to do, what it doesn't do. And it's generally going to have a couple of different pieces. It's going to have uh, the instructions of how to put it together. It's going to have the best ways of using it. So you can say, well, how do I do this? You know, there's how you do that. And then at the very end, it's going to have troubleshooting. <laughs> if it goes wrong, check this. Well, in, in a lot of ways, that's what God's law does for us. We don't see the entire picture. We are limited by our own scope of knowing. But in God's word, God continues to tell us, no, this is how I created this to be. This is how it was meant to be. I think the place the owner's manual illustration breaks down is the Bible is not merely where we go to see how to do things. It's where we learn to see Christ. Um, and it's in knowing Christ that we ultimately know the way God intended things to be. The problem, again, of humanity is that we each wish to go our own way. Uh, we each wish to create things how we want them to be. And unfortunately, our life is not like a box of Legos. Um, yes, you can build the car on the box, but you can also build many other things. Uh, life in this earth is not that way. God created us for a specific purpose and for a specific way of living. And so, within God's law, he tells us how to relate to th certain things and how to know if we've got it wrong. And so he tells us how to relate to our wealth. Because he knows if we get it wrong, we're going to cause ourselves and others a lot of pain. He tells us how to relate to each other because he knows we are likely to destroy relationships on our own. He tells us to value children and to see them as a blessing because he knows a self-serving world would mistreat them. And so the separation of righteousness and sinfulness is God telling us how things will be best for us. 
And so, the recognition of our sinfulness is rightly a recognition of our brokenness. And a recognition of our brokenness should lead us to seek wholeness, should lead us to put away that brokenness and to seek in Christ wholeness. And so, with this understanding of sin, we see a couple things. First is that continuing in sin tramples on the death of Christ and uses it for our gain. And so John is imploring us to turn away from our brokenness because continuing in brokenness tramples upon the death and sacrifice of Christ. And we see this in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so God came, redeems us, that we may be his possession and that we may be zealous for reflecting his goodness, his greatness, and his glory in the works that we do. Continuing in sin, in fact, tells our Creator He does not exist. Let's say in, uh, in your first day of work, uh, going to work for, for Brother Tom here, building a building, uh, he says, I want you to do things this way. And you saunter off and do things a different way. Well, if you continue a pattern of that, you're basically saying, you know, thank you for the paycheck, but Tom, you don't exist. Your experience doesn't matter. Your wisdom doesn't matter. In the same way, continuing in our sinful ways is in fact telling God he doesn't exist. And it makes a God of ourself. So hopefully in having a right understanding of our sinfulness, helps us understand what, in fact, Jesus has done for us. And so, secondly, here this morning, let's consider the nature of Jesus. The first word we see describing Jesus in our text is that he is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus is in a sense, the second Adam who came was given the same moral test that Adam was, but yet Jesus remained true and faithful to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him who knew no sin. Hebrews 4.15, He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so Jesus 
represents righteously what God expects from all humanity. Jesus fully lived the way God expects all humans to live. Jesus images for us as humans perfectly the image of God in human form. How many of us, if given the the three temptations of the devil, uh, would have not wished for a kingdom of our own? Would have not wished to be able to instantly call the angels to save us from our, our daring ways? And I think that's one of the the struggles each of us face. Uh, We wish to be the ruler of at least our domain. Imagine if we would be giving a larger domain. But Jesus stood in those temptations and recognized his place before God and remained righteous. The second word we see is that Jesus is the advocate. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And so we find ourselves in this place where to rightly understand ourselves is to understand our brokenness. To rightly understand ourselves is to understand our temptation away from righteousness. That understanding is not a license to stay there. But that understanding of our brokenness and of our temptations is proper in understanding ourselves that way. John says, but if anyone does sin. It's not the the goal that we live vicariously within sin. We pursue against it. But when we fail, and if we fail, we have an advocate. We have an advocate. We have Jesus, the the lawyer, if you want to say, which is a bit of a term for an advocate, that continues to tell the judge at the sentencing the penalty has been paid. None of us can stand before that judge and claim our innocence. None of us can make the case that my way was better than God's way. But as we own and as we confess our brokenness, as we are honest before Christ, as we place our faith and trust in Him, then He stands as our advocate and He says, Yes, Yes, he is guilty, but he is also mine, and I have paid that penalty. Jesus has an eternal credit of righteousness that he applies to those who are his. And we see this as well uh, in the latter part of verse 2. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Christ's righteousness is sufficient to save all who will call upon his name. 
The third word we see here describing Jesus is is that he is the propitiation, uh, which is a word we don't normally use. But it simply means he is the atoning sacrifice, or he is the sufficient sacrifice. Understanding God and his righteousness, we must also take into context the wrath of God towards unrighteousness. And Scripture is full of the display of that righteous wrath towards those who reject God. And in in the Jewish uh, system of sacrifices, one would sacrifice an animal to appease the wrath of God as an offering to say, I'm serious about being your child. But Jesus is the eternally sufficient sacrifice that satisfies the just demands of God. He is the lamb whose death is enough. The lambs of the Old Testament were merely a token. But Jesus was sufficient. The Jews sacrificed daily, but Jesus gave his life once and for all. And so, with Jesus as our propitiation, there is a sufficient sacrifice to cover our sinfulness. So what does a right understanding of of these two things uh, mean for us? The first is that so our trust is not in ourselves. Acknowledging our brokenness is in a level of owning up to our mistrust of our own ability to be righteous. And there's many other places in our lives that we, we do this. Um, the other day I was mowing the lawn and I turned the, turned the deck off to go to a different place over a driveway and I hit the button and the belt spun out, uh, ripped it. And I'm generally pretty handy with that sort of thing, so I found the expensive belt. And, uh, but the man kindly gave me an instruction sheet that said, this is how the belt gets wound. Uh, Now, I'm sure I probably could have figured it out, but that probably could have taken a lot longer and could have ruined a a belt, (laughs) another belt. There's a level in which it's healthy for us to not trust ourselves. It's healthy for us to understand the, the, the problem of our sinfulness that is deeply within us, so that our trust is not in us and not in our ability, but our trust is in Christ. And secondly, it's important that we know these two things so that our faith is not shaken when we fail. God is able to cleanse and rescue us, and our faith is in Him in doing that. 
the knowledge of our brokenness. Again, it doesn't give us the right to remain broken, but it does help us keep our faith in Christ when we do fail. And so, what is our responsibility? I think the first is, as we saw uh, in verses 5 to 10 of the previous chapter, to be honest about ourselves. He says there that if we confess, if we're honest with God about ourselves, about our brokenness, then He will forgive and cleanse. And if we're honest to each other in our fellowship, how open are we with each other about our our failures? We all have them. We all know we have them, but we can we can tend to protect ourselves because we think we think that I, I I have to have people think well of me. But are we being honest about ourselves? Secondly, to trust only in Christ. So we confess, we're honest about ourselves, but we trust only in Christ for our salvation. And again, that seems to, I shouldn't have to say that, right? But I I think we so quickly turn to trust our own abilities, turn to trust our own efforts. I'm going to do this. But is our trust only in Christ? And thirdly, to consider again the language that we see in 5 through 10 of walking in the light. I think it basically means to walk within the presence of God, to walk openly before God, to walk in ways that we are known and we seek to know. Walking in the light as being present regularly with God, being regularly reading and understanding His Word, being regularly speaking to Him and hearing from Him in prayer. And these things are important. Um, As we see uh, in verses uh, 7, these are important so that our sins can be forgiven and so that our sinfulness can be cleansed. If our sinfulness is what separates us from God, if our sinfulness is what separates us from living life as He intended us to do, then let us pursue openness with God and with each other, and let us pursue Christ as the only hope for our redemption. Let's pray. Father, this morning we recognize our uh, our tendency to trust ourselves, our tendency to think uh, lightly of our sin. Father, help us to take seriously uh, our own desires that lead us astray, to take seriously the, the, the brokenness of our heart, Father, help us not to trust in our own efforts, to not trust in our our own thoughts, but to trust only in your word and in Christ as our Savior.
And Father, as we uh, walk in the light, would you uh, fuel our efforts with your grace? That we may seek to live obedient lives that bring honor and glory to you and that seek to uh, put away our own honor and glory. Father, thank you for the gift of your Son, the one who was truly righteous, the one who came and gave his life for us. Thank you that his sacrifice was sufficient, not only to cover our sins, but the sins of all who would call upon his name. And Father, may we do that every day of our lives. We pray this through Christ our Savior. Amen. Let's have a verse of song.